to Collected Talks of David Solomon, podcasts on topics ranging from Jewish history and the Bible to Jewish mysticism, philosophy, and thought. To find out about David's talks, books, and more, visit davidsolomon.online. And now, here's the lecture. Thank you for uh, returning for the uh, fourth and kind of final installment of this uh, roller coaster series. And uh, I'm hoping that the denouement of the whole thing will be worth it. Uh, is there anyone here who has not been to any of the previous talks of this series? Good. Is there anyone who has was missed last week's? Is there anyone? Oh, okay. Uh, all right. Put your hand up if you've actually been to all of them. Oh, outstanding! Very, very good. Then, then I know. That, thank you very much, Tony. Then I know that most people are going. I'm going, not going to have to do too much revision. Um, now, tonight, as you can imagine, I always say, "Oh." I didn't there. do that. Not me. Not me. Who did this? Tony. That's not bad. That's not bad, Tony. I'll use that. But we're just going to take out Portugal because it's not really kind of, you know. It's all right. It's all right. It's all right. But we're good. No, that's good. I'm going to use that and consider that a big compliment. I'm going to. Sorry. What? What have you done here? What? Sicily? Yes. No, I can see. I can see. Yeah. Yeah. I've been there. Now. Come in. Um, I always say that it's going to be a complex talk, uh, but tonight is particularly so. But we've tried to break it down thematically because it's a century where a lot happens. And not just a lot happens overall, but there's some amazingly isolated incidents that really we should be aware of um, and prioritise them as uh, understanding how and why they can happen. Sometimes people wonder about how you can retain so much history in your head. And those of you who studied history will know that part of that is due to the fact that things, and I'm going to say this and some of you are going to go, uh, things can only happen when they happen. In other words, it's very difficult for some of the things we're going to talk about tonight to happen earlier in history or later in history. So everything clocks in together. And as soon as you understand kind of a key project of what's going on at a particular time, that's why we spend so much time on backgrounding it, so we understand the world that we're in. But uh, last week, we discussed some issues that, are going to have, that do have bearing on what we're going to talk about tonight. Tonight, I'm going to talk about 1250 to 1300. 1250 to 1300. Now, this is an interesting, uh, more than interesting, this, is, this, really, this talk is really what all the other three are about. They're all leading up to understanding this. But let's just background a few things that are happening, just so we understand. Everybody, we talked a lot about here and here, right? We're talking about this axis of Central and Western Europe and through Spain. We talked, we've talked a bit about the Middle East. Yep. Yeah? I think in... Uh, good evening. Uh, we talked, you know, we've talked very, very briefly about... Uh, community set up in China and so on, but that's the reason we're focusing so much on this. We saw in this period that life is thriving in Baghdad. There's a re Iraqi Renaissance. 
And part of the reason why we spoke mostly about this particular axis here is because that's really what's going on. That's the center. We haven't really expanded yet. There's no new world. And Jews like to live near the center of the known world, near civilizations. However, it is during this very period we're talking about tonight, particularly from the 1250s, that we start to see the beginnings. And remember, remember, what, I, what did I say at the end of last week's talk? What did I mention? Remember. <laughs> very good. But that, very good. Uh, but those of you who were here, because I'm not sure I was, uh, I think that I ended up just at the end speaking about the fact that we can see in the period that we looked at last week, the origins of Yiddish. So we know, therefore, where the eastward migrations are coming from. And they're coming not up from here. They're coming from Ashkenazic Europe. And it is this period we're talking about tonight that they start going eastward in greater numbers, this is the period where places like Poland or Greater Poland start opening up their doors because kings are saying, for example, you know, the king of Poland would say, oh, you know, I saw what the king of Austria did. Remember, we also spoke last week about what the king of Austria did, Frederick II, the duke, not the king, the duke of Austria, how he had passed those laws to enable Jews to come. A very countercultural thing to do if you look at the whole of European geopolitical reality, but he said, no, you know, I'm, I'm not going to persecute Jews, I'm going to open up here. So those kings go, oh, that's a good idea. And they open up, uh, so he starts to open up Poland. It's not yet the big immigration that's going to happen in the following century under Casimir the Great, but it is the beginnings of Jews moving into greater Poland, and we know that they spoke a form of Yiddish, and we know where they came from. The other interesting place that Jews are going into eastward, and we know the first documented synagogue is really where we start to get an idea that there is a community. So you know what it's like when you start a shul. It means you've been there for a little bit before, but you are about, you've got enough critical mass that you can start institutions like a synagogue. We've seen that in Australia, we've seen it in America, we've seen it in Europe. And so these frontier countries are where Jews are just now starting to establish communities in places like Hungary. So we have the first documented synagogue in Buddha in the 1250s. <coughs> and some Jews are going even further. This is where historians can point to the first documentations that we have of a Jewish community in India. Jews are living in places like Cochin and on the west coast of, uh, of India and they are partaking in the developments that are happening there as trade is bit by bit increasing with Europe. It's very, very early stages. We're not yet anywhere near the age of exploration, but Jews have reached India. So you can see that we're going eastward. And it's not surprising, because I'm here to tell you, and you certainly could tell me, that in the 13th century, and in the 1250s, life for Jewish people in Central and Western Europe was, on the whole, yuck. Yuck. It, we see right throughout this region, divided up in all sorts of pockets of kingdoms and fiefdoms, a 
very, very significant pattern of behavior on behalf of authorities towards Jews. And we see oppression in different spheres. We see economic oppression, we see political oppression, and right now we are going to start really cranking up on what we might call theological oppression. And that's a very, very big point to understand in what we're going to talk about tonight. <coughs> a few, I mean, it's very, very difficult to summarize all of the horrible things that started happening in this pattern towards Jews during this period. Remember that we had established at the Fourth Lateran Council last week the idea that, uh, you know, the perpetual service of the Jews, they were really belonging to the king, they were belonging to the authorities. Entire Jewish, and in, by the way, I don't think an entire Jewish community could be mortgaged. Do you understand this? It was an asset. Now, what was the asset? What was the asset? In, in, well, obviously, but how and why? I mean, in our day, in community, people would, you know, run a mile from the Jewish community. You know, when, why were we an asset? Why? What is it? What, what, what is it? You know, I've, I've given some thought. I don't have all the answers. People know what I'm about to say, but to really get inside it. Yeah, yeah, well, yeah, but why would you... Yeah, now... Obviously, we know that they used Jewish money and Jews were charging interest where Christians couldn't and Jews were the people you went to for loans and Jews were underwriting all sorts of ventures on behalf of government and on behalf of private individuals and until interest accrued up and then things would happen and there would be some pinprick that would explode at either a massacre or an expulsion. Whatever. That whole pattern is happening and particularly now it's going to start taking place. But why, why would you go to the Jewish community for money? Why did Jews have money? If Jews were powerless, you see, I don't buy that. I don't buy that alone. It's, uh, the, idea, the idea, which is a reasonable idea, and it's a reasonable thing to look at, that for some reason Jews are clever in business. Why are Jews clever in business? They were, the, the Christians and Muslims were forbidden to take interest on money is the end of the story. Everybody talks about how the Jews had to lend money at interest and that was the only thing that they were allowed to do after their economic opportunities kept getting restricted. But how did Jews have money in the first place? If you know where that stash is, please share that information. No, I think that there are some critical points behind this. We are talking about a highly polarized world. If you're going to really stand out and make money, you need a certain fluidity in your economic system. Jews were the lubricant of every economy because Jews were always literate, multilingual, multilingual, were able to be trusted by Christians and Muslims who weren't even allowed to be in dialogue with each other. And Jews had something that would have been unheard of for 99.999% of people living in the high middle ages in this part of the world. They had international <coughs> connections. If I was able to get a message in the right kind of language to a Jew living here or here or here or here, 
I could have a conversation with him and he would know that I'm a Jew. I live in this community, my rabbi is this, and here's the Loshan in which I'm talking to you. So you understand we have a few opportunities over here. If you can get this to Chaim Shmuel and Chaim Shmuel can get it to there and he can get it to there and I can change the money here. You go to this Rav, you go to this Shul, you go to this house, you go to that inn, you speak to someone. Jews! Machgeschäft! And Christians didn't really have that kind of scope with even... So I've just, I just want to open that window up. We don't have all the questions, but this idea, this idea that our oh, Jews are good at business, although we all buy into that, some of us, I don't know where, where it's gone, but for me, for, for some of you it might be, but I think when we buy into that, we're a little bit guilty of buying into what is effectively actually an anti-Semitic trope that has emerged from the Middle Ages. What I'm interested in as a historian is to get into the anthropology behind that and understand why that is. In saying that, obviously it doesn't explain why the BRW rich list every year has like, you know, 10 Jews in the top 50. I can't explain that because today's world is a world where theoretically everyone could have that scope. But I still believe it plays a part. Now, That was the pattern, but what we start seeing in the 1250s is we start seeing the breakdown of that pattern because we are starting to see in the Christian world a bit of a rise of a middle class. It's not a middle class that we come to know of much later on after the rise of burger capitalism and so on, but it is the beginning of a kind of mercantile and self-funded middle class that may not necessarily need Jews. Plus, You've got all this theological static in the background about Jews. And sometimes Jews get in the way of uh, debts, meaning that sometimes, you know, the king would actually tell someone that the government owed money to that they can get the collect they can collect it from the Jews. Or vice versa, they would go to the Jews to collect money from the public. Jews were constantly getting caught. And sometimes the only solution to this <laughs> was to eliminate your Jews. But we can't kill them. So what we see in 1250 is the first nationwide expulsion. The reason we don't think of it in that grandiose terms is because it was never really enforced. But in 1253, Louis IX of France expelled all the Jews from France. Now, bearing in mind this is France, so this is what, 13 years after we saw the burning of the Talmud. That was a big French project, and always these expulsions were preceded by more and more draconian, anti-Semitic and Jewish persecution ideas. But in 1253, but it wasn't enforced. No one really wanted the Jews gone, because the Jews were important for the economy, but it was the beginning of an idea. And I always say, as soon as an anti-Semitic idea comes into the world, people go, oh, what a good anti-Semitic idea. I think we'll try that over here. Now, Louis IX was having all his issues with Jews, but on the throne of England for much of this period, and I'm giving another example of political uh, oppression and economic and theological oppression that is happening at this time, in the 1250s particularly, was very, very dark. As on the throne in England. Who was on the throne in England? Had a huge reign, by the way. Reigned from like 
1216 right up to 1272. Who was on the throne of England? Not quite. Who? Just before Edward I? Henry III. You were right. Henry. And, you know, far be it for me to make judgments about people in history that are long gone. But, 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 and, and, but he was a real prick. <laughs> and Henry really, really went about enforcing. Remember the whole thing that had come out, you know, from the Lateran Council and so on about how Jews had to wear badges and Jews had to be this and Jews had to be that. He took, he was extremely from in his implementation of that. He made things very, very difficult for Jewish communities. But the really significant moment that happened under Henry III, and why Jewish history, I think, does or should regard him as one of the most anti-Semitic of all the European kings, is because in the 1150s, an episode happened in England that was a call back to something that we spoke about actually in the first talk of this series that had happened in England, when we talked about the blood libel at Norwich. But a hundred years later, a blood libel started again in a famous one called Hugh of Lincoln. Well, Chaucer writes about it. But, but, but Hugh of Lincoln, and this was, this was extraordinary. Because um, <coughs> it was actually an extremely cynical attempt to try and use the Jews to make even more money out of them than they were making out of them because it was theologically uncomfortable to make money out of Jewish interest lending. So let's find another way in which we can exploit the Jewish community to make money. And they found a Christian child that had gone missing called Hugh and they found him at the bottom of a well. And they got a Jew to confess confess, whatever that means, that <laughs> this was a ritual sacrifice a la William of Norwich. Now, William of Norwich had already come into the conscious again because people had been writing books about it. There was a kind of a hagiography about it. Now it was all about Hugh of Lincoln. And what Henry III did is he turned that into an industry because they then said that Hugh, who has little Hugh, who was killed by the Jews for blood for their matzahs and was ritually cru crucified by them, is performing miracles. If you come to Lincoln, you will get miracles. And if you pray to St. Hugh. And so people started streaming in and they cleaned up from the religious tourism that was happening around it. This is, read up, it's very, very disturbing. But of course, of course, heaps of Jews suffered and died as a result of that libel. And what do we learn, what do we, what do we see here? Remember, remember last week I spoke about Frederick II? Yep, the big kind of mad scientist king? <coughs> so do you remember I told you, I think I mentioned it, that one of the things that he, one of the pronouncements that he had made was that there was no truth to the blood libel as a scientific pronouncement. And Henry III went in exactly the other direction. This is the only case, because even popes had got up and said, no, the Jews don't do that. But Henry III went in the other direction.
and said, this is the only case of the Crown actually consenting and agreeing and accusing and executing based upon the official belief in the blood libel. England was not a good place for Jews in the 13th century. Probably the worst in many ways. Jews had to wear badges, all sorts of things. But we'll come back to the Jews of England, but it's important. Hugh of Lincoln is an important turning point in that. But there's also a couple of moments of theological oppression that we have to understand. What do I mean by theological oppression? Well, you remember from last week as well, right? That the book burnings in Paris, yep? And the rise of the Inquisition and the fear about heresy. Now, those book burnings were only stopped by popes who were saying, you know, we really shouldn't be doing this because if we go back to innocence, decrees of 1198, we're actually supposed to be allowing the Jews to get on with their traditional modes. So we're burning the Talmud, we're burning their books, that's not really what we're supposed to be doing. So it was actually putting a stop to that. But in the 1260s, there's a Pope called Gregory the Ninth. And Gregory the Ninth issued a papal bull, which is important for us to talk about for a minute, because it's going to have a very lasting effect on what we're going to talk about, what we are talking about. And that's a bull called Turbato Corde. Don't know how good uh, people's Latin is here. Turbato Corde. When I tell you what it means, you'll understand. It's the stirrings of the heart. What was Gregory the Ninth's heart stirred by? You see, it had always been the case in the Inquisition and in the Christian theological oppression of the Jew that heresy was not something a Jew could do. If a Jew believed in Judaism, that's not heresy. That's what a Jew does. That's what they're meant to do until they see the light of Christ. Yeah? Heresy is a Christian thing. But... What we're noticing, says Gregory, is that there's getting it to be a bit of overlap. We're seeing a lot of overlap. Some Jews are deciding that they want to opt out of their misery and they want to become Christian. And we know that because we know that by the 1250s, 10% of English Jewry alone had become Christian. And we're not entirely convinced of their sincerity. Moreover, we've got Jews who for whatever reason became Christian. Maybe they were baptized against their will. Maybe they were taken as infants. Maybe they had a phase and they want to go back to Judaism. And then we've got Christians who actually want to convert to Judaism. And this decree was having none of that. It was opening the doors of the Inquisition to anybody in the Jewish community that had any connection with Christianity at all. Either they had converted to Christianity, converted back from Christianity, or a Christian who converted to Judaism. He wanted to bring the overlap between those two into the... This is very, very significant for us to understand. 
And the other moment comes about later in the century when another Pope, Nicholas III, takes it further and says, we're actually going to have an aggressive project of conversion of the Jews. We can't forcibly convert them, but we can brainwash them. He didn't obviously use the term brainwashing. He hadn't read the Manchurian candidate, but that's what he meant. So he introduced the fact that Dominican friars could go into synagogues unimpeded when they wanted and deliver a sermon on Christ. I mean, I know some of you sit in shul on Shabbos and you wonder about the sermon that your own rabbi is giving. <laughs> but imagine if a priest walked into the middle of the laning and said, stop now, I'm giving a talk on Christ. And everybody has to sit there. No one can leave until the priest leaves. And then they get on with the next Mishabarach or whatever it is they do. Now, some rulers took this very seriously and even introduced the idea that Jews had to attend churches and hear sermons once a week. This was, this was what we call theological oppression. And this is the world that's coming about by the second half of the 13th century as a result of the Inquisition driving European and Christian neurosis into itself because effectively the Crusades are lost. And Europe is about to turn inwards in on itself. Who are the Jews? What are they doing? Not all kings were bad. And we had a couple, I mean... We spoke last week about a couple of kings that seemed to buck the trend. Uh, and remember also that everywhere where the Jews were invited in, they were generally kicked out a couple of hundred years later, and we looked at that. But there were a couple of Christian kings in Spain that were bucking that trend. Particularly, who am I talking about? Some of you will have heard of this dude. Alfonso the Wise. Alfonso X of of. Uh, of Castile and Leon. Very wise king. He's called the wise, but he was kind of one of, saw himself as one of those far vision monarchs who didn't have a problem being surrounded by Jews and Muslims. Remember, Castile is still very much a mixed kind of place, kept a lot of scholars around, tried to make things easier for the Jews, but like so many Christian kings, and especially his father in law, the other quite interesting king in Spain of that period in relation to the Jews, James I of Aragon, these early Christian kings of Spain saw themselves as Christian and they were Catholic Christian, but they were not like these people under the sway of the Holy Roman Empire and the Pope. They had their own independent brand going on and they really, really protected their independence and if, damn it, if they wanted to be good to their Jews, they'll be good to their Jews. And they need them. But they always had to keep an eye out for Rome because remember that the power that the Pope held in being able to excommunicate people, if you excommunicated a king, it effectively meant that you excommunicated an entire country. And that would put so much political pressure on the throne that it simply would not be something that you would want to go in that direction. So kings always, the kings of Spain kind of took things to the limit that they could, but always had to hold back in case the popes uh, exercised that power. This is the balance that we're looking at. But <laughs> now that we've got to, oh my gosh, I've 
just finished the introduction to this talk. <laughs> now that we've got to James the first, and we're on James the first, now we can really start talking about some more detailed things that are happening. But it's very important to understand the theological pressure. Now, last week, <clears throat> last week, in other words, if we were to sum up this entire talk in two words, it would be called theological pressure. It would be called, and, sorry, theological pressure and massacres. Go home now. I spoke last week about the famous disputation in Paris. Yep. Between. Anyone remember? Rabbi Yechiel of Paris. And, and Nicholas Donnan. That ended up in the burning of the Talmud as a pernicious and blasphemous book. And the banning of the Talmud right throughout France. And the burning of the Talmud right throughout France. And do you remember I said then that there are three important disputations that we need to know about through the Middle Ages? Yep. And what are the three important disputations? Well, the first one was Paris. And the second one we need to talk about now because it happened under James I of Aragon in Spain and could not have happened anywhere else. So it couldn't have happened any other time and it couldn't have happened in any other place. But in 1263, there was a humongous debate, government-sponsored debate between one Christian and one Jew selected from the entire Christian and Jewish world to debate the truths of Christianity in Barcelona in 1263. And that debate, sponsored by the Crown, was the brainchild of a dude called Pablo Cristiani. Now, Pablo was actually originally Jewish. When these boys become Christianized, they don't just go a little bit in, they go all the way and they take on these amazing names. And you would have to be quite committed if you took on the name Pablo Cristiani. And he basically went to the Vatican, he went to the Pope and he said to them, you've got a problem and I have the solution. You have been arguing all this time and your problem is that you say that the Jews are misguided because they understand the Bible according to the Talmud. So every time you try to show them clear references to Christ in the Bible, they pull out the Talmud and they say, we don't read it like that. That's not what it says. Look in the Talmud. So your solution to now has been to damn the Talmud defame it and throw it in the fire. But that's not having the desired effect. However, I've done some years of study with the Talmud and I reckon I can prove that the Talmud, rather than being a book that you need to destroy, is a book that is talking about Jesus. The Talmud will demonstrate to the Jews the truth of Christ because the Talmud itself is showing them. 
It talks all its discussions on the Messiah, all its discussions on divine redemption and salvation. I can show that that's all about Christ. And the Pope went, that's an awesome idea. Now, they needed to hold this debate somewhere and they didn't want to hold it in Europe because it was just a mess and because the Inquisition was, and the Pope's authority was so strong in Europe that they wouldn't be able to hold the debate in a way that could be organised and safe and secure for its participants. But in Spain, it's a kind of independent territory, and James of Aragon, when he heard about the idea, said, bring it on. I want to see that. I mean, there's no Netflix, right? And they're not broadcasting the World Cup. So you would think, let's bring this dude who reckons he can, and it's, but he said, but if we're going to have it, a few things have to happen with this debate. First of all, it has to be an open playing field. The Pope's not going to like this, but we have to allow the Jews to say what they want. And Pablo Cristiani said it's very important as well that you allow the Jews to say what they want at this debate because if you hamper them and censor them and curtail them, then if I win, it will not have the effect. It will not convince Jews. They will know. They will know that they were only allowed to say things within a very tight range of possibilities. But if you allow the Jews, within the manner of civil debate, free speech, and James of Aragon thought that was also brilliant. He said, yep, I'm all for free speech. I'm all for free speech. I don't care. Let the Jew talk. And let's see what happens. I want a really, really, really good fight. And then we'll see what happens. James of Aragon, by the way, was not saying, was not thinking, I'm not sure of the outcome. Yeah? Do you understand what I'm saying? It's not Collingwood against Richmond. But he was convinced, he was convinced that Christianity <laughs> would win because it has to win because it's the truth. But the Jews just coming around to Christianity, then it'd be great, because then I won't be under pressure to get rid of my Jews, everything will be fine. But the other thing that had to happen with the debate was, <laughs> as well as allowing whichever representative of the Jewish world was going to answer the challenges of Pablo Christiani, with free speech, it had to be someone that was unbelievably impressive. If Pablo Cristiani was just to beat some archi-parchi local yokel, your average Chaim Schmerl from the Burbs, it's not going to have an effect on the Jewish world. But if he defeats in debate the greatest rabbi and sage in the Jewish world, someone that everybody respects, and if he was to convince him that the Talmud is talking about Jesus and that the truth of Christianity shines through every page of the Talmud, then the whole of the Jewish world is going to convert to Christianity and that will be it. Christ will come. Because that's the only th reason that Christ hasn't come is because the Jews don't believe in him. That, by the way, is a fundamental theological tenet of Christianity. Certainly medieval Christianity. Who's going to be the judge? Of oh, oh, James is going to be the judge. James is going to be the judge. <laughs> but we'll get to that in a second. And, of course you know who they chose. Now, 
Put up your hand if you know who they chose. Oh, I'm saying you know who they chose. And I only got two, two hands. Okay, okay, good, 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 good. They chose someone who was not just the greatest sage of his generation, but the greatest sage of just about most generations that he would have found himself in. And he had just spent years and years and years writing his commentary of glosses on the Talmud, as well as a great variety of other things. He was a deeply, deeply revered figure, not just in Talmudic learning, but in Kabbalistic learning, in moral statue. He was the greatest sage and he was highly, highly venerated. His name was called, his name was Rabbi Moshe. Moshe Ben Nachman. This is the Ramban. Now, we don't get confused between the Rambam and the Ramban because the Rambam, you put the emphasis on the first syllable and when we say Ramban, we put it, as apart from changing M to N at the end, we put it on the second syllable. So it's an important thing to know in history. Don't say Ramban because people go, and don't go Rambam. It's Rambam and Ramban because otherwise we'd go nuts. But the Ramban, the Ramban, and the Ramban agreed. The Ramban agreed because he didn't want to be seen on behalf of the Jewish world as having anything to fear or anything to hide. And James promised him security and promised him free speech. Very, very important. And it, the debate, now some debates, you know, some of these debates lasted for weeks, some for months. Tortosa famously started, lasted for years. This debate was over, done over three days. Now, whether they were consecutive days, I'm not sure, but it was in a very, very short period of time. The debate was carried in front of the full court of Aragon and hundreds and hundreds of onlookers, and they had the debate staged. There it is. The ultimate classical medieval debate. It was reduced to two or three fundamental sets of questions. They said, we're not going to argue scripture for the next few, you know, whatever. Let's just get straight down to it. Is Jesus the Messiah promised by the Bible, according to the Talmud? Is Jesus divine? Is the son of, is the Messiah meant to be a divine being? And what can we say about the fundamental truths of Christianity? And the Ramban completely and absolutely demolished Pablo Cristiani inside three days. This was a test match that was basically over by the third day by an innings and 500 runs. <laughs> Pablo Cristiani's arguments were left shattered. James gave the debate to the Ramban. He visited the Ramban's shul, he gave him a hundred gold coins, and he said the famous quote, one of James of Aragon's most famous quotes, I've never seen anyone so wrong debate so well. <laughs> and that is the only debate in the entire Middle Ages that we unequivocally won. And we know that because we have the transcripts of it, because the Dominican friars all wrote down the transcripts so you can actually see the transcripts of the debate. It was based on the 
disputation on Barcelona that Chaim Maccoby wrote the script for that great film called The Disputation, which is based on those events. And I recommend anyone who's interested in that topic to read that because it's brilliantly uh, portrayed. Um, what's his name? Who was, who was that? Um, who's that actor? Oh, he's in You know, he played uh, um, uh, Saruman in Lord of the Rings. Christopher Lee, thank you. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And he, he played Count Duco in, um, in Star Wars. Yeah, yeah. He's James of Aragon. And uh, the Ramban is played by Alan Dobby. I mean, it's got a lot of interesting actors in it, but it's amazing for him. Have a look at it. Anyway. And then, to save his life, James of Aragon, who by this time had become quite friendly with the Ramban, exiled him. We can see on the one hand that his, this exile was a punishment, but in fact... I believe, as a number of many uh, people who uh, have investigated these events are of the opinion, that it was actually probably a kindness that he did him. Because the Dominicans and the church were really, really braying for his blood, literally. They wanted him executed for blasphemy and so on, putting a huge amount of pressure on, on the kingdom. So they exiled him. And where did the Ramban famously go? You know this. He went to Jerusalem. He went to... the. The Aliyah of the Ramban. Now the Ramban is already in his 70s when he does this. And he makes Aliyah to Israel. He gets to Jerusalem in around 1267. And the first thing he does is he tries to build a minyan with a shul. He only finds two Jews in Jerusalem. Two brothers. <laughs> cloth dyers who are living in Jerusalem, the only Jews. So he has to go all around, he has to go to Hebron, he has to go to other places all around to get people to come and live in Jerusalem so we can have a minyan. And he builds the synagogue of the Ramban, which stood for exactly 700 years until 1967. It has now been rebuilt. Uh, and you can go and you can see the synagogue of the Ramban. It's in the Jewish quarter. This is, and in Israel, I mean, he passed away in 1270. So he was only in Israel for three years before he died. But in that time, the Ramban wrote his famous, famous commentary on the Torah. The commentary of the Ramban is one of the four pillars of commentary that we read. He's up there. Rashi, Ibn Ezra, the Sephorno, the Ramban. But in his commentary is the whole mystical absorption of what had been going on in Spain. And we're going to talk about in a few moments the developments of mysticism that we looked at in the last couple of weeks coming from Provence. But the deeper those movements and those ideas penetrated into Spain, the more they became infused with the mixed culture of the Islamic and the Christian worlds. Follow? Now, if the Ramban was the big figure in Spain, I'm just looking at the time. If the Ramban was the big figure in Spain, I'm trying to, I'm trying to give you an understanding of the complexity of, this, of this, just this 50-year period, then there is a big, big sage living in Germany whose life really also epitomizes this entire period. He was the, basically the kind of the end of the line of the great lineage of the Tosophists. 
that had come all the way down from Rashi. This was someone who had studied under Rabbi Yechiel of Paris when he was young and then gone to live in the German town slash city of Rotterdam, not Rotterdam, Rottenburg, Rotterdam's in, in Holland. Of Rottenburg, this is, who am I talking about? Rabbi Meir of Rottenburg. Huge figure and someone, um, this, this blue is useless, someone that we would need definitively to discuss because you can't discuss this period without understanding him and what happened to him. Because what happened to Rabbi Meir of Rottenburg, who we would need another lecture to go into properly about what a complex and huge figure this is in German Jewry at the end of the 13th century, not only a huge scholar, but also an incredibly saintly person. And he became the victim of a new trend because emperors thought, I can squeeze more money out of the Jews if I imprison their rabbis and extort them. So Rudolf I, he gets hold of the Maharam and he imprisons him. And then he demands a massive and exorbitant amount for the entire Jewish community of Germany to get him back. Now, you know that in all cases in Jewish communities, we have an obligation to redeem captives huge obligation. We don't always see it come into play today because, you know, there's no longer the same level of pirates or slave trades or all the other things that happen in which Jews get captured. Some people were definitely claiming that kind of effort needed to be made on behalf of various Jews like Jonathan Pollard and so on, but we don't see it so much as we saw it in the medieval world. Jews were often getting abducted or enslaved and every, the local, the closest community had a definitive obligation to raise the funds to redeem them. But this price was huge and was exorbitant and people started collecting the funds because this wasn't just any Jew, this was the greatest sage in Europe. <coughs> and they raised the amount. And Rabbi Meir from prison forbade them to pay it. Issued a halachic ruling because he said, if you pay this, then there will be no end to this kind of thing. Let's refuse to pay it. I'll sit in prison. And maybe they'll see the light of their ways. But after seven years, he died in prison. It took 14 years to get his body back until one very, very wealthy Jew, who is now buried next to the Maharam, paid the amount just to get the bones back of the Maharam so they could be buried uh, with, uh, with the proper rites. This, this is, these are dark days. Now the Maharam of Rottenburg had two very, very important students. Actually, before I tell you that, let me just tell you something else. Since I've got you all in a dark mood, let me tell you this. In 1298, that whole world of southern and central Germany Jewish communities is about to go through an unbelievable series of massacres called the Rindfleisch massacres. 
Now, the complex details behind how that came up and who was Rindfleisch, you can look into. He was some local Lord dude who took it upon himself a holy fever to kill Jews right throughout Europe. But they slaughtered 146 communities before a stop could be put to them. The Rindfleisch massacres, and I always say this, remember... The project to annihilate the Jews of Germany is not an isolated event related to the Holocaust. It's a thousand year project and that has every 200 years flares up in a major conflagration. We saw what happened with the Akedah in the First Crusade. This is 200 years later. These movements spring out of nowhere and they sweep through Germany and they run into towns and they kill Jews and then they move on. We don't know how many Jews were killed in the Rindfleisch massacres, but estimates are around 20,000, which must have been an enormous proportion of the Jews of Germany of that time. We do know how many communities, because that's commemorated in various Memorbuchen uh, uh, and so on. Now... Rav Meir Maharam of Rottenberg had two very, very, very important and significant students. Remember, the time that I've got, what we have to talk about, if I mention someone, they're important. Yep, they're really important, unless they're popes and kings and things. I'm talking about, I'm talking about rabbis and sages, right? One was, one was the Rosh, whose name is Asher ben Yechiel who we know as the Rosh. Now the Rosh became famous because he took all of the literature of the Tosafists and of Ashkenazic Jewry and codified it in a type of proto-Halachic code. Later, later, 250 years later, when Yosef Karo is in Tzvat and he's, or, or, in, or in Adrianople and he's compiling what's going to become the Shulchan Aruch, the Rosh is one of his three big pillars. Who are the other two? You know the other two because we've discussed them in this series. The Rif, the Rumbum, and the Rosh. The Rif who'd come from Morocco to Spain, the Rumbum who'd gone from Spain to Egypt, and the Rosh who had been in Germany with his son, the Tour, Yaakov, his son, Yaakov bin Asher, who we know as the Tour, and we know him as the Tour. Tour means column or row, because he laid out the whole halachic paradigm of his father in four fundamental sections that became the eventual structure of the Shulchan Aruch. The Orachayim, the Yoridayah, the Yobin Ezra, the Choshen Mishpat. And they were so disgusted by what had happened to the Rosh's great teacher... that they emigrated to Spain. This was a huge statement crossed from the heart of the Ashkenazic world to Spain. The other great student of Rameir of Rottenberg was Mordechai ben Hillel. And he went in the other direction, in the sense of rather than codifying, he went into commentating. He took the Rif's code as its fundamental, its fundamental structure and wrote a commentary based on all of the Ashkenazic literature of the last few hundred years. Once again, the Mordechai is drawn upon heavily by later halachic sources such as the Shulchan Aruch. 
it's impossible to estimate in contemporary Judaism. This is why this period is the period called the Rishonim, the first ones. That's what it means. It refers to the Rif, the Rosh, the Rambam. These are the great halachic Rishonim. And this is how the halacha has developed. But the influence of these two students is enormous. And Mordechai ben Hillel and his family were slaughtered in the Rindfleisch massacres. And the Rosh emigrated to Spain. Now when the Rosh emigrated to Spain in the early 1300s, so we're not going to go into what happened after that, but they encountered... <laughs> A Spain uh, whose, that was overwhelmingly under the authority in the Jewish community of a very significant communal leader who was both rabbi and communal leader. It's kind of unique to that. Even in the medieval world, it was unique to be both. But he was. And that is Rabbi Shlomo. Ben Aderet, otherwise known as the Rashba. The Rush Bar had been a student of the Rambam and of Rabbi Yonah of Gerona. Remember Rabbi Yonah of Gerona? Now, the Rush Bar was a very placid and mild-mannered dude. He was always seeking balance in things. He was. But he had a problem because Spain had become, I'm talking now about Jewish ideas, Spain had become very bifurcated in two different ways. It was subject to two different types of extremism in the Jewish community. One was philosophy. People were reading lots and lots of philosophy and getting very strange ideas. Can you see how this reflects the Christian obsession with heresy? Without going into it in too much detail, it's a whole big subject. The problem with Jewish philosophy at the end of the 13th century in Spain and how this Jewish community was coping with those challenges. But eventually, it led the Rashba to pronounce a very famous ban on philosophy. When? In, at the end of the 13th century. You're not allowed to read a philosophical textbook. You're not allowed to look at one until you're 30. I mean, I know that, that's about, yep, yep. It, what it meant was, it was a definitive statement because if you get in that world, if you want to be a scholar and you get to 30, then you'd need to have read everything that needs to be read. So saying that you're not allowed to read philosophy is a statement about how philosophy is outside what we consider Torah. Philosophy is not going to have an influence on Jewish thought. Unless the only reason you were allowed to read it, it's quite interesting, before 30 was what? If you were studying medicine. If you're studying medicine, you're allowed to read philosophy. Apparently, reading philosophy was very important to be able to cure people. Still is. When the Roche and the Tour came to Spain, as I said, don't underestimate how big a moment that was and how influential that was, that the two greatest authorities in, in Europe, come to, in Ashkenaz, come into Sfarad. The Rashbah was very excited to have the Rosh there, obviously, and got the Rosh to help him out with this anti-philosophical thing. As if the Rosh living here 
in Rottenburg and these other places and, and worms and these places was worried about philosophy. That was hardly his biggest issue. Getting lanced in the back was probably, a more, or, or thrown into a, an oven was probably more of a worry for him. But, you know, what does he know? If the rush bus says it's bad, it's bad. Whatever. Um, I hate to summarise the Rosh's attitude. It might have been a little bit less, you know, laissez-faire. But there is clearly that the Rosh bar got the Rosh to be involved in that. The other extremism that had to be contended with by the Rosh bar was the tendency of some people, not towards philosophy, rational thought. God, we can't have rational thought, can we? No. It was towards mysticism. Some people were reading Kabbalistic books, the new Kabbalah coming out of Provence and out of Girona. Remember, we looked at Azriel of Girona, we looked at uh, Isaac the Blind, all of these ideas of the Sphirot, all of these ideas of divine names and permutations, these things. Some people were reading that stuff and losing it. That concern is still with us today, right? All of those decrees, we go, oh, you're not supposed to Kabbalah, study Kabbalah until you're 40. All of that, those bulbomices were developed at this time in these places because they were freaked out about what people were doing reading Kabbalah. Because people were reading Kabbalah and going, oh, it's very interesting. Look how I'm empowered. Right? In fact, I'm so empowered, I might be the Messiah. In fact, we have, for example, the famous case of the prophet of Avila. Especially once you start getting deep into Castile, it starts to get very messy. In Toledo and Davila and Valladolid and all these places. But the prophet of Avila was creating a tremendous uproar by saying he was the Messiah. This is in the 1290s running around. The Rush Bar obviously had to cope and deal with that. They sent him, the, the, the prophet of Avila wrote, we're not even sure of his name, the prophet of Avila wrote a book. The book was sent to the Rush Bar. The Rush Bar freaks out once again. So really, we don't want you learning philosophy. We don't want you learning Kabbalah. We just want, we just want to be part of this pure kind of thing going forward. Let's not have any cults or extremist ideas. Yep. We've seen that pattern again and again and again. But there was one individual on the mystical side of the spectrum that the Rush Bar was particularly concerned about. And that's probably the most famous non-Zoharic mystic to emerge from Spain. And when I say the words non-Zoharic mystic, I know that you're going to be looking and we're going, oh, what am I supposed to understand by that? <coughs> Non-Zoharic <coughs> mystic. Well, the other Kabbalists that we're talking about are leading up towards this moment of the Zohar I'm going to talk about in a few minutes. But there was another, another mystic running around who had an entirely kind of different take on things. And it probably, when all said and done, possibly the most original Kabbalist of the last thousand years with immense influence into other areas of Kabbalah, but he had his own thing. His name, you've all heard of his name. Even if you do not know much about this person, somewhere in some dark conversation or light conversation, his name has come up. Now, I know some of you are sitting there going, no, it hasn't, David. You're going to say this name and I will not have heard of this person. Avraham Abulafia. Ah, well. Now, Abulafia was born in Zaragoza in 1240. Remember what we said about the, what's significant about the year 1240? Correct. It's the year 5000. I'm sure a few babies were born then, but Abulafia considered the fact that he was born in 1240 highly significant. 
because he had a particular quite reflectively built perception of his own potential contribution to the cosmic outcomes. <laughs> and he developed an entirely different strand of mystical, Jewish mystical Kabbalistic thinking that we could only really describe as a type of Kabbalistic yoga. It involved a lot of breathing exercises, a lot of physical positioning, a lot of meditation, a lot of automatic recitation and mantras, a lot of sitting in with, you know, in a white sheet in a white room, looking at a white page, going whoa, with a with a white talus over your head, with a white candle, you know, the whole thing. Now, some of you might be thinking, oh, Abulafia. Yeah, well, I've heard the name and also, you know, pretty obscure. Abulafia was the last, last great Kabbalist to have been published. His works only came out of manuscript for basic scholarly reading or any public reading in the 1990s. Until then, it was always Abulafia. And you'd read certain parts of the Zohar, certain parts, the latest strata of the Zohar and certain things, you know, and you'd see something, you go, oh, that looks a bit like Abulafia. And so he has this incredible influence. And he's all, I mean, he really, really got opened up in the 1970s and 1980s because some very, very big scholars in the field wrote theses and papers and books on Abu Lafia and he came into the mainstream consciousness. But he'd always been known by scholars as this very, very under-the-blanket thinker. What I mean by under-the-blanket is he's the guy you read with your torch under the blanket at night. Now, Abulafia came under the scrutiny of the Rashbar, and so he kind of went on this big wandering from Spain, and he ended up in Crete. He was a very, very different and radical and dangerous thinker. Those, uh, it's hard to go into his theology at the moment, but there are elements of it that can cause you to lose it a bit. And he, uh, in fact, some rumours are that some of his students may have even ended up converting to Christianity because he came very close to various cosmic exercises that you can do in Kabbalah to try and bring about the redemption of the world. Eventually, <laughs> as we approach the year 1280, Abulafia decides that he needs to go and on the big one. Now, the big one, for those of you who've never actually uh, role-played being the Messiah, is that <laughs> the big one, what's the big one? Oh, no, 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 that's the ultimate. That's the, that's the end. That's the end game. Jerusalem is the end game. The big one is this, is you've got to go and you've got to see the Pope. You've got to see the Pope. Now, just before I tell you what happened to Abu Lafia, because this is the most famous encounter and which is historical and we know this and everything. Before I just get into that, I need to explain who this Pope is and why, what was going on with Abu Lafia. The Pope at the time, as we move towards 1280, is Giovanni Orsini, otherwise known as Nicholas III.
a very, very interesting medieval pope. And he was like Gregory. Remember, Gregory had written this, uh, you know, the, the Turbato Corde, like this, you know, this whole thing about the Jews and we're going to open up the Inquisition. So Nicholas III was like that on crack. And he, in fact, not only had he formally, really interesting, because he was the only pope that was a cardinal and was elected pope before he even became a priest. So they made him a priest one day and they basically made him pope the next. But he had been, 30, 40 years earlier, as a young man, he had been the first grand inquisitor of the Inquisition. And his big thing was, as I said, I said at the beginning of the talk, Nicholas III, about sermons, forced conversion sermons. Now, it won't shock you to hear that Abulafia thought this was not a good development. Forced conversion sermons. <coughs> The church had made it a proactive exercise to convert Jews. It wasn't just going to be about winning debates or, you know, hoping that they see the truth of Christ. They're actually going to proactively convert them. And Bolafia says, basically, bring it on. Not only am I immune to your conversion ideas and your sermons, I'm going to convert you. Because that is what the Messiah, if I'm going to fulfill that, that's what I need to do. Whether or not I'm the Messiah, it needs to happen. I have this calling. So he starts a huge journey about which he makes no secret. Everyone he meets on the way, oh, hello, Abulafia, where are you going? I'm going to Rome to see the Pope and I'm going to convert him to Judaism. What ultimately happens, of course, is that word of Abulafia's journey and mission reach the Pope before Abulafia does. Now, the Pope at the time, Nicholas III, wasn't in Rome. He was in Vertibo, which is the summer residence of the Popes. It's very, very nice. And he was there. And so they get to, uh, the word gets to Vertibo. There's this Jew called Abulafia. He's a mystical Jew from Spain. And he's pretty certain he's going to convert you to Judaism, right? This is Nicholas III, the former Grand Inquisitor, the, the Pope, the, you know, the biggest theological oppressor of the Middle Ages. And he says, okay, here's what's going to happen. When Abulafia gets here, I want you to arrest him. I want you to put him in a dungeon with a window looking over the main square. During the night, sorry, during the night, I want you to gather as much wood as you can and build a great big mound of wood in the middle of the square. And I want him to see you doing this. And I want you to tell him that what we're doing is we're building the big pile of wood that in the morning we're going to burn you on. That's kind of like, you know, a liberal progressive response to cross-ecumenical relations. And, of course, Abulafia turns up in Vertibo, and they arrest him. It was <coughs> Rosh Hashanah. It was Rosh Hashanah. Now, you would think that he would say, Abulafia would say, look, you know, maybe I should just spend Yom Tov over here, and then I'll, I'll go. No. 
The fact that he turned up on Rosh Hashanah was very, very cosmically significant for Abu Lafia. That was not a day to not do it. That was fantastic. It's going to be Rosh Hashanah. I'm going to convert the Pope. He's in the cell, and fair, sure enough, they're gathering the wood. They build the huge pyre in the middle of the square. But in the morning, they open the cell, and they say, the Pope has died overnight. You're basically free to go. We don't know why we would hold you here. Now, Abu Lafia did not get to fulfill his mission of converting the Pope, but he sure as hell dined out on that story for a long time. We know it because he basically went back through Europe telling everyone. And we also know, we look at the dates, we know when... Uh, Nicholas died. We, uh, he died of a sudden heart attack or stroke on that on that night, and it was uh, it was one of the. And we don't really know much about Abu Lafia's life after that. It's believed that he may have gone back to Crete or whatever. But his books remained in manuscript for hundreds of years, read furtively by lots and lots of people uh, until and now and now they are published and accessible. And some of them are even being translated. They are absolutely fascinating, especially if you want to actually seriously invest in a kind of mystical Jewish yoga. Now, one of the students of Abu Lafia is Yosef Jikatila. And Yosef Jikatila studied for many years under the Rambam and learnt he, under, under, under Abu Lafia and learnt his system but became very, very attracted to the new Kabbalah that was being developed slightly further south in Toledo and Guadalajara, these towns in the center of Spain, not far from where Madrid is today. And the whole of the Sephirotic school that had come up in Provence and so on had drifted down towards the southern and very, very complex parts of Spain where things were generally a little bit more Islamic. I mean, Toledo had already been in Christian hands for a couple of centuries, but it was a much more Moorish environment. And the closer you get to southern Spain and so on, and taking in, and because of, you know, people like Alfonso the Wise's insistence on scholars and translators and tolerant discourse happening around, absorbed a lot more influences that were coming from the east and from the south as well as combining with all the kind of Gnostic you know Christian style mysticism that was coming in down from up north but developing it primarily in relation to the idea of Sephirotic symbolism. Now I spoke briefly about Sephirotic symbolism this is not a course on Kabbalistic thought uh, there are available readings on that if people want to make that journey. But we discussed this concept of the Sfirot and the creative modalities of divine interaction with the world. Yep? And that, that those Sfirotic modalities create an Adamic form, but they also explain the coming into realization of any phenomena in the world, including time, including history, and most particularly the relationship between the people of Israel and God. Because that, yes, quickly. Um, the ten spheroes, yes. is there a mirror um, philosophies in Islam and Christianity? No, it's unique. Right. It's unique. 
there are aspects of Kabbalistic thought that do are mirrored in philosophy and Islam and Christianity, such as Neoplatonic emanationism. You can see in various offshoots of this, but the core idea of the relationship of the Sephirotic system, which really, which really connects, and I don't want, can't go into this too deeply, but connects the Adamic form and the and the human with the name of God is a deep, deep idea. And then to take that and read it back into the Zohar, into the Torah. Read it back into the Torah, where the key figures of the Torah take on Sephirotic embodiment. They are symbols. Avraham embodies the Sephirah of Chesed, Yitzchak of Gvula, Yaakov of Tiferet, and so on. Not because one is necessarily symbolizing the other, but because they are that. Avraham is Chesed. Everything we know about Chesed, we can say of Avraham. Everything we know about Avraham, we can say of the Sephirah of Chesed. And each of these modalities are representing a different interaction of the divine, so that we start to understand the divine on a cosmic and earthly level, that they are all really reflections of one another. This whole game being, not a game, but this whole play being acted out by the Jewish people in the world is a reflection of the cosmic exile of the divine in the world. And that the completion and redemption of the Jewish people is the unification of, the, of God and the presence of God. God as God and God as the Shekhinah. The Shekhinah becomes embodied in feminine form. We are that embodiment. The people of Israel is a feminine divine cosmic entity. And our relationship is with God who represents the paternal or the male, but all is one, and that unity is happening across all levels. So even in our everyday life, when we do mitzvot, when we act out the principles of Jewish life, we are acting out these cosmic arrangements. This is a huge idea, and the one figure, of course, that is massively associated with this, and I mean, most scholars think today it was probably a circle that were developing the literature that became the Zohar, a circle that possibly would have included Yosef G. Katila, the earliest student of Abu Lafia, but the one person that is seriously associated with that circle that ultimately in 1290 produced the Zohar is who? Well, I'll get to that in a second. Let me just divert for one minute because... No, 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 no. Luria is the middle of the 16th century. That's, that's, that's not happening for another three and a half centuries. That, that, that Luria is the result of the Zohar three centuries later. I said 1290. It's very important to understand the significance of 1290. 1290, in one respect, if you ask your average non-Jewish historian, what would be significant about 1290? Unless they know more than the average about Jewish history, they will probably tell you that 1290, 1291 is marked by most historians as the end of the Crusades. Finally. Because 1291 is the fall of Acre, the fall of Akko, which was the last, last, last minute holding of the Christian kingdom in the Holy Christian Latinate kingdom in the land of Israel. But eventually, they got, even they got swamped by the Mamluks and 
from that moment on, it's game over and there's no more crusades. No one seriously thinks after 1290 of getting an army in Europe and going to the Holy Land to reclaim it. This is not a project. So that's what they would say. So that's why, But that is a very significant thing. The other significant thing that happens that's of more acute interest to us in Jewish history in 1290 is the fact that Henry III, who I spoke about in such laudatory terms earlier, was replaced, well, he's died, and was succeeded to the throne of England by Edward I. Those of you who've seen Braveheart with Mel Gibson will know that Edward I, Edward Longshanks, was the king in that movie. So he wasn't very nice to the Scots either. But his behaviour towards the Jews was appalling. He realised, oh, let's try some of these new anti-Semitic ideas here. Blood libel's not a problem. Desecration of the host, not a problem. Summary expulsion, not a problem. He took an entire area and actually basically, Gascony, and he basically said, he basically told the Jews to get out, expelled them and took all their possessions. Oh, why did I not think of that before? In fact, and of course, working on Henry III's, you know, um, statute of Jewry, the, the, the whole decrees about Jews that have emerged already from the 1250s, Edward tightened those up, extorted, extorted, and he goes, you know what, this idea of getting rid of them and actually just taking all their possessions, it's so much cleaner, it's so much easier, right? I don't even have to kill them, I just get rid of them, they'll find somewhere to go. I'll just tell them that if they're, if they're here next Tuesday, I'll kill them and give them a few weeks to get out. But they can't leave anything and I get all their positions. Brilliant. 1290 is the year of the expulsion of all the Jews of England. It worked for him in a small area and then he went, why don't I just do it right across the board? It's as cynical as that. I've got a few things I've got to fund. Where am I going to get that cash? Why am I dealing with Jews? Why am I arguing with anyone? And also, if I expel the Jews and pretend that it's theological, oh, we can't have Jews here in our Christian kingdom, then I won't get any crap from the Pope either. I'm not killing them. I'm not forcing them to convert. I'm expelling them. Expelling. I've expelled the Jews. I'll be the toast of Europe. And of course, all the Jews of England, 1290, first nationwide expulsion. And they went mostly to Germany and other places, in Belgium, Flanders. So that happened then. And as you know, Jews were not back in England until the middle of the 17th century. The 17th century. And 1290 is also the year of the revelation of the Zohar by Rabbi Moses or Moshe de Leon. Now that has led a lot of later scholars to thinking that he wrote it. Greats, the famous historian of the 19th century, was convinced that he wrote the Zohar. And even Gershom Sholem in the 20th century, who set out, by the way, on a 20-year odyssey of scholarship to, and research to prove that it was written much earlier, ended up saying, you know what, it looks like it was de Leon. But in recent years, <coughs> I feel so comfortable talking about this because this is one of the few things I actually know about. In, <laughs> thank you. In, 
Uh, in recent years, there has been a growing idea that it was obviously a group of mystics, what we call a chabura, that may have had a figure like Moses de Leon as their primary kind of sage or inspirer or motivator. But it, because it looks to us that the Zohar is not just a single work now, it's come more of a genre of different texts put together. But they all have the same flavor. And they are all written remarkably in Aramaic. Now, many, many reasons are given for why the Zohar appeared in Aramaic. First of all, I'm assuming you're familiar with the fact that this historical discussion, we're sitting here now in Chabad Glenaira in 2018, and we're talking about something that happened over 700 years ago. And for most people in the world, you know, really? That's what you're spending your evenings thinking about? But I can tell you that this historical discussion is still very, very much alive in the Jewish world about who exactly wrote the Zohar. Because the Zohar itself, of course, purports to be a literary product of when? The Tanaitic of Rabbi Shimon Bar Yochai, who is the second century, so it's like 1100 years earlier. Rabbi Shimon Bar Yochai is a student of Rabbi Akiva from the Mishnaic period. So obviously many, many theories have arisen. Maybe, I mean, the, 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 the theory that is, the idea that is believed within the framework of the religious world is that these texts were unquestionably written by Rabbi Shimon Ben Yochai in the Mishnaic period. They were hidden for a thousand years. <laughs> According to some, you can imagine, there's different opinions, but uh, most would tell you, no, they were hidden in the land of Israel, but they made their way to Spain in, around the time of Moses de Leon. He actually found them in Israel and brought them to Spain. There's a lot of confusion about it because it's a confusing idea. Somehow, the Rambam, Maimonides, who lived everywhere in the Jewish world and was the greatest sage of his and other generations and read everything, makes no mention of the Zohar. The secular academic view is that the reason it appeared in Spain at the end of the 17th century is because uh, it was written then. Other scholars take a more... I'm, I'm going into this in detail because you've got to realise how this is still one of the great fractious fault lines in the Jewish intellectual world. Where you stand on the composition of the Zohar and its authorship delineates you within that world. Others think that, yes, it was produced and edited and put together by Moses de Leon in Spain at the end of the 13th century, but it contains much older elements. Indeed, it does. Indeed, it does contain some strands that would appear to be older. But overall, the fact that it's in an Aramaic that is slightly different from other levels of Aramaic that we've seen, the fact that it's in Aramaic at all, and because Aramaic is a very powerful, mystical language that evokes a mysticism. No one's speaking Aramaic, but you're reading it and it sounds, so all of us have read, all of us have read Aramaic and been affected by it, even if we don't understand its words. You know this.
because the Kaddish is in Aramaic. Many of the most powerful mystical prayers in Jewish <laughs> liturgy are in Aramaic because it evokes that. So the whole of the Zohar is basically one long poem about God and the people of Israel and the problem of exile and the problem and the challenge of redemption based on seeing the Jewish people as a manifestation of the divine in the world. Why are we in exile? Because we are the divine in exile attempting to bring about the redemption. We are the vehicle for the revelation of the one, the revelation of the divine. It's not passing by us, it's through us. This is extremely important, and that's why this idea and these ideas become so influential in the centuries to come. As the Jewish people, blown about like a leaf in the wind, from place to place, and this really is all of the different curses that you see in the book of Devarim, in the book of Deuteronomy, and in the book of Leviticus, in the book of Vayikra, in the different tochachot that it goes into, what will happen to the Jewish people if they do not obey the Torah in the land of Israel and they get exiled and have to go on these long wandering exiles. All of the horrible things that will happen are clear and absolute prophecy of everything that was going on in the Middle Ages. And they knew it. But how do we get out of this? There has to be something. It's not going to come. The answer is not going to come from philosophy. Because we can try and be as civilized and rational as we like, but the, the nations, the Gentiles, are still going to kill us. What makes a lot more sense is to understand why they want to kill us and to how, say, how can we change the world by revealing the oneness of the divine through a deeper, deeper understanding of the mysteries of the Torah. So what we say in order to avoid that discussion is I'm very comfortable with the idea that we don't get involved in who wrote the Zohar. I know that all of you are going to rush home and go, David Solomon talked about the authorship of the Zohar, and then your families are going to go, and what did he say? <laughs> and where, where, what position does he hold? And what I think is very important to understand is that the Zohar is revealed in 1290. Whether it was written then, when it was written earlier, that's when it was revealed. We don't seem to know about the Zohar before this date. There are many, many stories, those of you who want to go into, about what happened with those sages that tried to inquire after the death of Moses de Leon into the origins of the Zohar. According to some, his wife claimed that he made it all up. Um, others don't believe that because they knew the man. They said he would never do that. There's all sorts of extreme, and there might be very, very genuine reasons why he would have projected it back into the Mishnaic period. There might be genuine reasons why he found manuscripts. All different sides to this and facets to this particular narrative, but the true reality is we don't know. What we do know is that this phenomenal, phen and nothing short of phenomenal, because anyone who reads the Zohar, you know it's just been translated again over the last 20 years by Danny Matt, the 12 volume Pritzker. It's beyond estimation, the influence of the Zohar on world spiritual culture. Because it's going to affect not just Jewish spirituality and Jewish mysticism, it's going to affect Christian mysticism and lead to the Renaissance and the Enlightenment and so on. The Zohar is a huge moment and it gets produced in by the Jewish community of Europe in a general sense at a time when we are going through one of our most dark passages of that exile. And so what I wanted to do in this course, because now I've finished, I wanted to do in this course 
was to bring us from basically the Rambam to background that, 200 years, born 200 years earlier, and to bring it through to see really how everything is being played out in a dichotomy of circumstances. We move from a world that is really shifted from between the polarity between Islam and Christianity to a world that is dominated all of here now by Christianity and here by Islam. And I'm here to tell you that all of the horribleness that we spoke about is going to be superseded by more horribleness because the 14th century is disgusting. And as well as disgusting, you can throw in the Black Death as well, which wiped out a third of Europe's population and all the massacres of Jewish communities. That is, this is 50 years after the period I'm talking about tonight. So the next century is awful. But, but, but there are sparks. Not only is the Zohar produced at the end of the 13th century, but we're just a few short years, maybe just five or so, ten or so years away from Dante. And Dante, as you know, is just the beginning of the first spark of the dawn of the Renaissance. So European culture is about to go through a whole thing that we are still living through. I have really enjoyed giving this tours. I, I hope it's brought some of you some understanding or in detail. Everything I've mentioned is important. There's a lot that I didn't mention that's also important, but I wanted us to get the main structure out. I'm going to miss this, and I'll tell you what I mean. As I was driving here, I thought to myself, I'm going to miss this. And maybe, in some messianic future, we could do this every week and go through the whole thing. Every century, every 50 years. Because I've, I've suddenly, this, this is the course that's made me realise that 50 years is a good treatment. And maybe we could do, we've done the 12th and the 13th centuries, but I can tell you there's a lot of material in the other centuries, both prior and following, and maybe it would take us a long time, but we could go, we could go right through. Uh, we could start from the second to 500 BCE and go right through. Yep, and then start again. Who knows? Make a big seal. Anyway, guys, thank you very, very much for listening to that. Find out more about David Solomon's books, recordings and classes, or to support his work and teachings for just a few dollars a month, visit davidsolomon.online.